Hard. <laughs> Repositions are hard. Uh, maybe for a few minutes, can you can you guys think of any Bible verses right at the top of your head? I'm not I'm not talking about quoting chapter and verse or even making sure you have it exactly right according to the old King James or anything like that. Just do you can you think of any verses off the top of your head where the phrase in Christ or in him or in Jesus is used? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Good. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Any others? Who had one? I thought I heard somebody else. I mumble. Mumble it again. Uh, I, I, uh, in him we live and breathe. Uh huh. Any others? In him we have redemption through his blood. Any others? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Yep. Yeah. Good. Any others? For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Good. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Good. In him we can do all things. Aha. Uh -huh. There's two prepositions. <laughs> Any others that you can think of? It's not important that we get them all. There are too many for us to get them all. But they are everywhere in the New Testament. Uh, in, in fact, it makes us stop and think sometimes, have we really considered this phrase, in Christ? It, it is so prolific throughout the New Testament that maybe we just gloss over it and we assume that we understand it, but maybe we need to take a step back and say, well, what does this actually really mean? Okay, So that, that's the goal of our uh, talk today, uh, to find out what does it mean to be in union with Christ. Okay, that, That's the phrase that the theologians are going to use, union with Christ. Uh, but when we read it in the New Testament, it often... Um, manifests itself in the in him, in Christ uh, construction, okay? So that's what we're going for today. Uh, we want to look at several models that Scripture gives us. Uh, let me say at the outset, uh, we're not trying to survey every instance of the in Christ uh, model in the New Testament. We, we can't do that. We can't survey everything, categorize everything, make sure that we have a complete list of understanding. What we would rather do is uh, create a thought process in our head so that when we encounter all of the in Christ in the New Testament, we say, oh, yeah, I have a structure to fit that into, and now I can understand a little bit better uh, what the New Testament is saying. So we're not going to survey everything, but we're going to try to hit a broad spectrum of what the New Testament means when it talks about union with Christ. Okay, so we want to talk about three... Uh, Biblical models of what union with Christ look like, looks like. We want to talk about three unbiblical models of what union with Christ has been described as. And then we're going to look at five uh, significances or implications for what union with Christ uh, means for us in our everyday lives. Okay? So if you, could, uh, if you could find in your Bibles John chapter 15. 
Okay. In John chapter 15, the apostle writes, he's quoting Jesus here. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pause right there. Let's just think about what Jesus has communicated to us here. Uh, Jesus is using the metaphor of the vine and the branches. This is very familiar language to us. We, uh, we learned this one from grade school in Sunday school class, right? Uh, the vine and the branches. Jesus is the branch. We are the vine. So we are connected to the branch. If we are disconnected from the branch, then we have no life in us. We, are, we might as well be gathered up thrown into the fire, and burned, right? There, there is nothing about us that is alive if we are not connected to the branch, okay? But in the same way, there is a commandment all throughout this passage that we read. Not only is it true that Christians are connected to the vine, but Jesus commands us to abide, Right? Abide in the vine. It's a command. Uh, Jesus is commanding us, so what are we to do? How, how do we abide in the vine? You guys tell me. What did Jesus say? If you obey my commandments. Which isn't hard at all, and is in fact really kind of, there's only two or three commandments, right? So it's, um, it, it's a rather simple task for us to accomplish. Well, maybe not, uh, but th this is what Jesus commands us to do. Abide in me. How do we do this? You obey my commandments. If you obey my commandments, uh, then I will abide in you. My words will abide in you, right? Uh, all, this is what it means to be in union with Christ, that we abide in in him. It's a commandment. But there's a flip side to it as well. I want, I want you to see. So if we back up a little bit to verse 5. I should never try. I should have just said what I was going to say and not say, hey, the verse is uh, abide in me and I in you. Thank you. Who said that? Thank you, Larry. Uh, not only are we to abide in Christ, but also Christ abides in us. Okay, 
So there, there is a flip side to the coin of union with Christ. It is not just that we are in Christ somehow, whatever, as we go through this lesson, we discover that it means to be in Christ. But there is also the aspect that Christ is in us. So uh, we, we've spent time talking about uh, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we've talked about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the work that the Holy Spirit accomplishes for us. Uh, but the Bible is clear. It is not just the presence of the Holy Spirit that is in us. It is also the presence of Jesus himself. And as we approach the final implication that we want to get to uh, this morning, uh, we'll see that it's also the Father that abides in us. It is the complete Godhead that abides in us. And this is the model that Jesus paints for us in the vine and the branches uh, metaphor. So we are the branches. He is the vine. We are to be connected to him, and we are to abide in him. If we abide in him, we are keeping his commandments. If we are keeping his commandments, if we are abiding in him, he says we can pray, and our prayers will be effectual. Uh, one biblical model for understanding what it means to be in Christ. Okay, Flip in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, if you will. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is giving instructions to the church. Uh, specifically, he is, uh, towards the end of the chapter, he is talking to wives, husbands, and then at the beginning of chapter 6, he's speaking to children. Right? So we have this family relationship dialogue that's going on uh, in Ephesians 5 and 6. And as Paul is speaking about the obligations of wives to husbands and husbands to wives, uh, he, he is wrapping up his argument about marriage here in verse 32, where he writes, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, So let's just pause right there. We, we ju we're just going to uh, focus on that one verse right now. So we all have experience with the, well, um, let me put it this way. We all know what marriage is, and we've all read about marriage, and we've all seen marriages, and we've all uh, been taught from the Bible about what marriage means. So we're, we're told from the beginning that uh, a man is to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. Okay, so there is a union between husbands and wives. Now, we, um, we live this out as sinful creatures who are married to sinful creatures, who have a really hard time uh, reconciling our own sinfulness with their sinfulness and just living in a, a blessed union all the time, right? We, we fight, we quarrel, and all of these things are affecting our relationship with our married partner if we are married. Uh, and, and if you're not married, you see this going on around you, right? You see marriages breaking apart. You see marriages that are failing, that are in trouble. Um, but the biblical model is for a husband and wife to be in union with each other. Now, we get to Ephesians 5, and Paul tells us why God gave us marriage, right? Uh, there, there's no marriage among lemurs. There's no marriage among giraffes, right? Uh, but marriage is given to people, and Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 why. Now, 
He's saying it's a mystery, but I am referring to Christ and the church. Okay? So if you can picture the most intimate relationship between two human beings, that one flesh union, that intimate uniting of a man and a woman in marriage... Paul is saying that institution was given to human beings so that we could later understand what it means to be in intimate relationship with Jesus. Okay? So the parable, if you will, of marriage is to instruct us about what it means to be united to Christ. One model is the vine and the branches. Another model is marriage as we think about what it means to be in union with Christ. Okay? A third model, as we're moving through the lesson, is the model of headship. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. I'm going to start in verse 20, just so we can get the context. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, so let's pause right there for just a second. Uh, the, uh, the third biblical model, that, and, and I'm not saying these are all of them, uh, I just wanted to give us a, a glimpse at the different ways the Bible talks about union with Christ. Uh, this model is about headship. Okay, so as in Adam, all die. So you say, well, how could that be fair, right? I... I didn't sin with Adam, right? I wasn't there. I didn't do anything wrong way back, however many thousands of years that was, right? I didn't sin with Adam, but the Bible teaches a headship model, that Adam is the head of the human race. So as the head of the human race, we are all found guilty under Adam. So also, if our head is Christ, we are found righteous in him. Okay, so this third model has to do with how God thinks of you. Okay, um, what does God see when he sees you? Okay, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you have renounced your sin, turned away from wickedness, and turned to life in Christ, if you have exercised faith in the Son of God, believing that he is the only hope of salvation... How does God view you? Namely, he views you under your new head, the head of Christ. So the righteousness that belongs to Christ, God sees imputed to you. The, the worthiness of Christ, God sees imputed to you. There is a headship aspect of our union with Christ. So we've seen that we are to abide in him. We have seen that it is an intimate relationship. And we've also seen that it is a headship relationship. Christ is our head, our ruler, our 
the one in whom Christ, uh, that God sees us if we are united to him. Okay? So, a few different models from Scripture about what it means to be in union with Christ. Let's talk about three models that are incorrect. Okay? Uh, first model that is incorrect is, a, it's an ancient idea that says God is everything. Okay? Uh, let's just elaborate on this a bit. Um, Never be satisfied if you're talking with an individual and you ask them, do you believe in God? And they say, yes, I believe in God. Never be satisfied with that answer. Okay? Uh, lots of people believe in God or a God or in some sort of divine something or whatever. Okay? It is not enough for anybody to be what we would say a theist. Right? Someone who believes in God. It's, it's not enough. You can't stop a conversation with somebody there. Uh, you love this person. You want to see them in heaven with you forever. You ask them, do you believe in God? They say, yeah, I believe in God. Well, great. End of story, right? Well, no. In fact, there, there are lots of different models that uh, thinkers have come up with as to what they think God is like. Okay? One of those models we call pantheism which simply means that God is everything. Okay, So when you look at a tree, you're seeing God. When you look at the clouds, you're seeing God. Faraway stars, God. Now, they don't mean that the creation glorifies God, that it, that it proclaims the glory of God, and everyone can see that there is a real personal God behind creation. What they mean is the tree itself is God. Everything participates in the essence of God. Some Christians have been influenced by this philosophy, and they have taken the idea of union with Christ, and they have said, ah, it's not that there is a separation at all between me and God, or me and really anything else. I am God. They have taken the idea of union with Christ and they have said, oh, God is everything. I'm part of everything. I am part of God. So because we are part of what exists, we are therefore part of God's nature. And being a part of God's nature is what the Bible means when it says that we are in Christ, that we are in union with Christ. This is a completely false model that we need to reject. Okay? Uh, the Bible teaches that God is a personal being who uh, is separate from his creation. We are the created. He is the creator. He is separate from us. We do not participate in his essence. Ron? Under pantheism, would the believer also think that even evil things, sin, is God or godly? Yeah, uh, you use the word believer there. Well, and I, I try to be really kind to anybody who's thinking hard about these things. Uh, it would be difficult to reconcile this philosophy, even if they're trying to justify it with Scripture. It would be difficult to call them a true believer. Okay, but one that holds is uh, to be truth. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, 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 would, they would view all things as participating in the nature of the divine. Uh, and so 
anything that we want, we might call evil uh, is a participation in the divine nature as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any other questions about pantheism? Never settle for imitations of what the Bible is talking about, okay? So if the Bible is talking about us being in union with Christ, don't let somebody smuggle in ideas that are not really what the Bible is talking about. That's an extreme example. What is a less extreme example? A less extreme example might be a mysticism, okay? So a a mystic might say that we are lost in God. What does the Bible mean when it talks about us being in Christ? What does the Bible mean by union with Christ? The mystic might say that we get lost in the divine nature, okay? Uh, We might hear this expressed softly. Now, again, let's be kind to anything that anybody ever says, because I've said plenty of things that will be, that could be construed as, as really silly, okay? said plenty of those things. One silly thing that people say is, let go and let God. Now, let's be really kind to somebody who might say this in a well-meaning way, but let's boil it down and see, what do you really mean when you say, let go and let God? Well, certainly we don't mean John chapter 15, abide in Christ, right? We're not taking up the command to do something, right? Uh, What they might be saying, and, and what the mystic is, in fact, saying, is that we need to divest ourselves of our own personality. We need to be so lost in union with Christ that it is as if, Jesus is living his life through us. Actually, not even as if. It is we are letting go of our own selves. And Jesus is filling us. And basically, when we act, what people see coming is the acts of Jesus himself. That's the kind of union that a mystic is after, right? They want to, they want to be deleted. They want Jesus to be uploaded. And then everything that happens in this body is an act of Jesus in the world. Okay? Jesus, take the wheel, right? Just let go and let God. Okay? Um, It's also a wrong view of what union with Christ is supposed to be. Okay? So there's an extreme example of um, just believing that we participate in God's essence. There's an extreme example of trying to uh, you be gone and Jesus replace you. But there's also sort of this, I'm going to say it is a a rational. Now, actually, I like the word rational, but a definition of the word rational where where we're just trying to understand things simply based on our own experience, right? If I can test it, if I can touch it, if I can, uh, if my five senses can behold it, then that's real. Well, there's an aspect, of, there is a definition of union with Christ that some people try to fit into that model. We might call this a psychological union. This is a union like between agreeable friends. You have friends, right? And some friends share share your ideas so closely 
that you can get into a conversation with them and you guys can go for hours not really disagreeing about anything. You're just talking back and forth and whatever they say, that is a great point. And then you say something else and the friend comes back to you and says, perfect example, right? And you're, you're so close friends that your ideas just seem to be in sync all the time. That is an idea of union with Christ that might appeal very well to our 21st century American sentimentality, right? We like things that we can put into a box, that we can understand, that we can study, that we can say, oh, it's an example of two friends sitting across the table from each other and agreeing about ideas. So maybe what the Bible means about union with Christ is that Jesus is a smart guy. And everything he says, I agree with him, as if he is a great friend. Well, he is a great friend, but that is not what the Bible is specifically meaning when it talks about union with Christ. The Bible is talking about this abiding, this mystery of an intimate relationship, this headship that, uh, that overrides everything you've ever done because Christ is your head. That is what the Bible means by union with Christ. It doesn't mean all of these false ideas about what union with Christ might be. Any questions or thoughts about the, either the biblical models that we've discussed or the unbiblical models? Somebody remind me what time I have to finish. Quarter after. Quarter after. Thank you. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the implications of this union with Christ. Okay? So, uh, what does it mean, therefore, that we are united to Christ? Uh, first, let's think about salvation. Okay? Um, let's think about what does it mean for us that we, uh, for ourselves, what does union with Christ mean for us? as regards to salvation. Uh, if you're in 1 Corinthians, uh, stay there and just go to the beginning of the chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Now, I've broken these up into five different elements, but you're going to see as we read through these scripture passages they all kind of bleed into each other. So uh, I want to talk about salvation. I want to talk about new life. I want to talk about the life of the church. I want to talk about uh, living in community with other believers and living in community with the Godhead. Uh, but as we go through these five different passages of Scripture, uh, let's just kind of put our heads around all five of these things at once. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Pause right there. You see the phrase, right? Uh, you are in Christ Jesus. So he is talking about union with Christ. What does this union with Christ entail? He became to us wisdom from God. How, is, how does the wisdom of God relate to us? Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Okay? Uh, we've, we've talked about all three of these words in the class so far, right? Uh, we were talking about the doctrine of salvation. We've talked about righteousness. We've talked about sanctification. Uh, and, uh, and 
I want you to think about what Paul is saying here is soup to nuts, right? From beginning to end of our salvation, it is all a matter of in Christ. Can you name an aspect of, of your salvation that wouldn't be uh, appropriate for you to describe as having that aspect of salvation in Christ? The answer is no. Many of the passages that we look at in the scripture where the phrase in Christ is used are specifically talking about the different aspects of our salvation. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is giving us a, a look just from the, beginning of in, from the beginning to the end of salvation, whether it is righteousness or sanctification or redemption, all of these things are given to us in Christ. Right? We have the abiding, intimate relationship, the headship of the one who is our king. Right, That is the model of union with Christ. If you do not have the abiding, intimate headship relationship with the king then you don't have the aspects of salvation. You do not have righteousness. You do not have sanctification. You do not have redemption. Okay? So when Paul talks about union with Christ with regard to sanctification, every aspect of our salvation is linked to our union with Christ. You cannot have any aspect of salvation apart from union with Christ. Okay? A second significance for uh, union with Christ is found in Romans chapter 6. You could turn to Romans chapter 6. We're going to read a little bit longer of a passage here and... And dwell here for just a minute. Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, uh, a second implication, a, sec a second significance for our union with Christ is that we are literally given a new life. 
I didn't use the word literally in like modern culture way, right? I want you to believe literally you have a new life in Christ. Okay? How is this new life pictured here in Romans chapter 6? Okay? So we have the picture of baptism. Let's just dwell on baptism for a minute, okay? Um, there, there, there have been discussions about baptism since the church started, right? Uh, we don't want to talk about modes of baptism. I, I trust that if you know, we're here this morning, you understand at least that uh, the teaching of this church is the mode of baptism is immersion, right? Uh, but let's talk instead about what does baptism signify? And is it really all that important? Okay. So, so we understand that baptism is not salvific. Okay. Baptism cannot save you. In fact, it's not even a requirement to be saved. Okay. It, it's not a checkbox that you have to get accomplished in order for you to be considered saved. But it is rather important in the Bible. It is, it is in fact, so important that the Bible speaks... Uh, so highly of it that it is a picture of our participation in Christ's death and resurrection. Now, baptism, the act of baptism, is not the place where your death to sin and raising to new life happens. That happens at conversion, regeneration. Okay, But sometime after your conversion... You go through the practice of baptism, right? And the practice of baptism pictures to the world that you have really died and were buried, and you have really risen again. Now, how, how can we use words like this? How can we say that you have really died? And what do we really mean by that when we talk about uh, union with Christ and death and burial and resurrection in conjunction with baptism? Uh, you see, baptism is picturing an actual reality. The actual reality is that union with Christ, if you are in union with Christ, it means that you have really died to your old self. The old has gone, the new has come. Right? You are a new creation, and how does this happen? It doesn't happen apart from union with Christ. Union with Christ is essential for us to participate in his death and resurrection. But then we are given, as a gift of, from God, this picture of death and resurrection in baptism. And it's a privilege for believers to, at the beginning of their Christian walk, participate in this symbolism to show the world what has really happened inside. In Christ, we have died. In Christ, we have been buried. In Christ, we have been raised to new life. This has implications for how we are to live. Are we to go on sinning then, according to Romans chapter 6? By no means. You've died to sin. Now, what does he mean by go on sinning? Does he mean that uh, believers who have died in Christ, been buried with Christ and raised with Christ, will no longer sin again? I don't think so. Let's, 
Uh, We can read ahead in Romans chapter 7 if we need to. Uh, But what he is saying is we, we cannot live the exact same lives that we lived before we were united to Christ. When we were united with Christ, we have really become different people. And having become different people, we ought to live like different people. We can't live like the world lives, and we can't live as, um, as we used to live. And then in verse 5, he goes on. Uh, for we have been united with him in a death like his. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Um, the resurrection that is pictured in baptism is a, is a raising to new life. But in verse 5, Paul is speaking about a future event, a future resurrection that is coming to all true believers. A resurrection like the resurrection Jesus had, which was an actual dead body being revived to life eternal. Your actual dead bodies, if you are to die before the coming of Christ, will be raised to a, with a resurrection like him, if you have been united with him. Um, And all of these things are to uh, be manifested in us right now because we are living lives that are different from the life we used to live. We used to live a life enslaved to sin, is what Paul describes here. Uh, We we couldn't help but sin. Everything we did was sin because it was apart from Christ. But having been united to Christ now, uh, we are to live as those who have already died. As those who have participated in Christ's death, being united to him in his death. And now we are um, we're new creations. Uh, that's, that is one aspect of our having been united to Christ. A third aspect of being united with Christ is the life of the church. Uh, specifically, let's look at what Paul says about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is not where uh, we start our reading at when we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper usually together, right? That's in uh, chapter 11. But let's look at what Paul says about the Lord's Supper in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. So this is before he's giving instructions to the Corinthians about their um, practice of taking the Lord's Supper. This is more of an instruction about what the Lord's Supper is. Um, In order to get the context, let me start in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? I want to, we talked about baptism at length for just, just a few minutes ago. There is another ordinance that is given to the church, and that's the Lord's Supper, right? Just two. Now, uh, we need not think of these things as required for our salvation. Everything that was required for our salvation was accomplished in Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection. But these gifts have been given to the church 
so that as we picture what it means to be in union with Christ, we have these two great symbolic acts that help us really picture what it means to be united to Christ. You see, in our worship, when we celebrate baptism as a congregation, and in our worship, as we celebrate the Lord's table, what we are picturing is that people, real people, like you and me and your coworkers and your relatives and your friends and neighbors, real people, they can be killed and raised again with Christ. They can really be united to the King of Kings. They can really participate in his death and burial and resurrection. And in fact, in the Lord's Supper, we can really picture what it is to have Christ in us. Now, we are not talking about the elements becoming actual blood and flesh. It's not what we're talking about. But we are talking about that it is not, this isn't optional. This aspect of our life together as a body, the Lord's Supper in the life of the church is not one of these extras that just make us feel good. These are essential elements to help us understand our being united to Christ. So as the cup that we bless and the bread that is broken is celebrated amongst ourselves, what are we really celebrating? We are celebrating that we have, in fact, really, in a true sense, been united to the Lord Jesus himself. An aspect, a significance of what being united to Christ means is that we get to participate in the life of the church. And the life of the church can be varied depending on uh, our, our cultural, where, where, where we're at culturally, where we're at ge- geographically, right? The life of the church can vary, but these two are constants. No matter if you are a member of Christ's body in Africa or North America or wherever else on this globe, these two are constants. And why are they constants? Why is baptism in the Lord's Supper so essential? It pictures our real union with Christ. And this real union with Christ also has implications for how we relate to each other. Uh, So sticking in 1 Corinthians here, uh, jump over to chapter 12. uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Um, The life of the church is pictured in uh, union with Christ through baptism and the Lord's Supper, but we are also living in community with each other. Okay, So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Uh, The community of believers has eradicated so many of the 
social standards that the world has erected for us, whether it's the social standards of being of one particular uh, ethnicity or uh, one particular gender or uh, any of the things that we set up to separate ourselves. Uh, Paul is saying here that union with Christ means that not only are we united to Christ, but we are also united to each other. We are one body. And so where the distinction of Jew or Greek used to be, or the distinction of male or female used to be, or the distinction of uh, slave or free used to be, in, in union with Christ, you have also become united to one another. So the question we're asking in these significance points here is, does union with Christ have any practical implications for how we live our lives? Okay, so we've seen that union with Christ has implications for our salvation. In fact, every aspect of our salvation is linked to union with Christ. But now we have been given new life, and it's pictured in baptism, and we have been uh, put into a fellowship of believers, and we partake of the Lord's Supper together, all picturing our true union with Christ. But the fact that baptism and the Lord's Supper do not exist outside of communities of believers is only emphasized by all this body language in the New Testament. That God has put us into a body of believers, a community where uh, if we were to go on in chapter 12, we would see here that the eye cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you, right? Uh, all the members of the body must work together. Uh, but why is this important? Uh, yeah, it, it's great practically speaking. Practically speaking, it's great that all the members have different gifts and all the gifts work together and so that we can be a functioning machine, right? Not the point. The point is that the same Christ that you are united to in His death, in His resurrection, and in your salvation is the same Christ that your brother and sister is united to. And you separately, having been united to the one Christ, now you are united to each other. And this has implications for how you are to treat each other. This has implications for how you are to care for one another, how you are to meet each other's needs, how you are to rejoice with each other and mourn with each other, and all of the aspects of life together that the outside world, they, they try to imitate, but they can't get to the essence of. Being in a community with other believers is a real practical outworking of your being united with Christ. And so it behooves all of us to ask the question, how am I doing in my living life and community, having been united with Christ and knowing that my brothers and sisters have been united to the same Christ, and so therefore we are in community with each other. We are united to each other. How am I doing in that living, that unified life together? <coughs> I'm not pointing fingers. Uh, Three, four, ten fingers are pointed back at me all the time. Uh, but it, it, does at, it does at least ask us to raise the question. If we are one body because we have all individually been united to Christ and so therefore united to each other, how are we doing with how we treat each other? How we talk to each other? How we um, move each other along in the faith? Okay. One final implication for um, union with Christ. And then I want to go back to the board. All right. One final uh, implication is not only are we uh, 
in a community with each other, but we are also in a community with the Godhead. Uh, go back to John chapter 14. So we started in John 15. Let's go back to John 14, verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Uh, th- there are lots of other scripture passages that we could go to. Uh, I liked this one because, honestly, it, it made a circle. I-, I liked starting in John and ending in John. And if you haven't noticed, uh, John's probably my favorite book. But um, in-, in John chapter 14, Jesus speaks of the Father, being you being united with the Father also. Which is to say that having been united to Christ and Christ intimately united with the Father and the Holy Spirit being intimately united with both the Father and the Son, now you cannot help having been united to Christ also being united to the Father and the Son. It is such a grace that God has come up with this plan to unite the second person of the Trinity to a human form. And it is so, it is such a blessing for us to think about the second person of the Trinity now united in this human form because he has suffered as we have suffered. He has faced every temptation we have faced. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, that second person is, is so relatable to us. And union with him is key to our salvation and our life and everything we have. But we need not forget that having been united to Christ, we have been united to the Father and the Holy Spirit also. The entire aspect of the Godhead dwells in us. He is with us. And does that make a difference to how we, the choices we make, the thoughts we think, the actions we take? God dwells in you. You have been united to God. And that is a profound, difficult thing to understand, but it is so prevalent in the Bible, we have to to try our best to understand what that means. Okay. The vine, the branches, the abiding, the intimate relationship, the headship. Uh, Let's go back to our board and look at the uh, passages that we just thought of off the top of our heads. Or maybe some of you uh, had some written down in preparation for the class today. Uh, but as we think about these aspects of, uh, of what the New Testament teaches us, uh, is, there, is there something more to be understood about any of these things? Because uh, we have seen this abiding, intimate headship relationship with Christ. We've certainly seen the new creation. We have seen that uh, we have died to our old self and a new self has been raised. Uh, This is in union with Christ. We have been chosen in him. I said to you, every aspect of your salvation is in Christ. Your predestining before time began was in Christ. You need to believe me, every aspect 
of your salvation is in Christ. Um, we live and every we live and breathe and we move in Him, right? Uh, it is how we live amongst each other. It is every thought we have and action we take. Uh, our redemption is in Him. We've seen that specifically. All the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus, and you are in Him, and He is in you, and all the fullness of deity dwells in you. Really. We have an inheritance in Him. Uh, our final salvation is secure in Jesus. And uh, we can do all things through Him. Okay? Um, th th those were great examples. You will encounter many, many more as you go through uh, the New Testament. And I hope that uh, the structure that we've put together today will help you interpret these passages better. Uh, let, let's pray quickly. Father, will you please help us to understand better what it means to be united to your Son and help us now as we worship to understand that the worship that you have ordained is a picture of our union with Christ and our union with each other and this special time of gathering our hearts together to sing and pray and hear your word is essential to our Understanding what it means to be united to Christ. And it is, in fact, a living out in the most special way our union with Him. So please bless our worship as we uh, celebrate our union with the Son. In His name we pray. Amen. I turned it off. Okay. It's saved. Did it say? That's all I can find out.